Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking to Bernie Siegel. Dr. Bernie Siegel is a retired paediatric surgeon and New York Times best-selling author. He is a well-known proponent of alternative approaches to healing that heal not just the body, but also the mind and soul. In 1978, Bernie pioneered a new approach to group and individual cancer therapy. His goal is to humanise medical education and medical care, as well as empowering patients and teaching survival behaviour to enhance immune system competency. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> he speaks to audiences all around the globe, and the Watkins Review described him as the 20th most spiritually influential living person on the planet. Bernie, it's a huge, huge honour to talk to you today. Thank you so much for giving up your afternoon. My pleasure. Um... <laughs> I like the introduction. Sounds good. <laughs> but, you know, one of the words you use, you said, how to. And what changed my life back in 78 was going to a meeting I thought was for doctors. Because uh, it was run by a physician, Dr. Carl Simonton. And he had written a book, Getting Well Again. It was teaching imagery. And I thought, you know, here's a doctor presenting a conference. I was the only doctor out of 125 people in the audience, which tells you a lot about the medical profession. You know, that, that it wasn't about pills and operations. You know, it was about people, and they didn't show up. But my patients were there. And the one who had a profound effect on me was a young woman with breast cancer because before we left, she said to me, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. See, how to live. And I, that changed me because I thought if I focus on helping my patients live, then I can't be a failure. You know what I mean? I may not cure their disease, but I can still help them live with it and any other problems they have in their life. And one more little point that I will make. I sent a hundred letters to cancer patients from our office saying, if you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. I thought I would have hundreds of people show up because I forgot to have the secretary put in that it's only for the people who get the letter. You know, you can't bring your friends and neighbors and so forth. And a dozen women appeared. That blew my mind. I'm offering them a longer, better life. And why didn't anybody show up? And the answer was, well, what if we don't do it right? What if we don't live a longer life? You know, what if we don't love enough or draw pictures for you or read books? And uh, it, it was sad. And uh, even one drawing that I often show when I'm lecturing, it says at the bottom, I had my son, Bobby, 10 years old, do this because I'm not good at drawing. Now, here's a lady I'm trying to help get over cancer, and she's worried about not doing a drawing correctly. I mean, you know, that's the stuff that is so sad that it's how people grew up. You know, if you grow up with the guilt, shame, and blame and parents, uh, you know, indifferent to you, rejecting you, abusing you, you're not a survivor. I mean, literally, you're more self-destructive because of what they did to you and how you then feel about yourself. But... Um, you know, my hope is that if we keep doing this, like reparenting people, letting them know we do love them. And doctors could do that, too. 
politicians, clergy, you know, any authority person could come along and say, I care about you. Mm. And then people in time begin to care about themselves. And that's something I saw too. The people who were self-destructive, I would keep seeing them, which nobody had ever done before. I mean, I'd give them a return appointment, you know, even give them a hug. And after a few months, they began, you could see the change in them, thinking, I must be worth something. He keeps telling me to come back where all the other doctors and people said, there's no point, you know, you don't do anything I tell you, so why bother to see you again? And uh, that part was a gift too, because they became like family. The one young lady said to me one day, and I never forget it, you're my CD. This was a suicidal teenager who I kept seeing. Chosen dad. And she said, you're my CD. I said, what are you talking about? I'm a CD. She said, you're my chosen dad. And that's something I say to lots of people. I said, it has nothing to do with your age, but if you need a father, I'll be your father. And that changes them. You know, they know somebody cares. Uh, they often don't need you, just your words. I mean, I see that with high school students who in one study, 70% of high school students contemplated suicide. So you talk to, say, 500 high school students, and I say to them, I love you. If you need a new father, I'll be your father. You know, and you can call me if you have troubles. You don't get 500 phone calls or 200. You get three or four, you know, from kids who are really troubled and abused. Um, because the others leave saying, hey, do you hear what he said? You know, he loves us. And they feel better about themselves. Oh, I never stop telling stories. Here's another one that really happened. We're tell, in heavy traffic in the summertime, uh, in the vacation area. And there's a teenager driving the car behind me. He had a girlfriend in the car. But he was screaming curses. I mean, you could hear it all over. You know, his windows were open. He's cursing and screaming. You know, it's like blaming me for the traffic. And I said to a policeman, I said... Uh, well, you tell him to be quiet you know, when we came to a corner. And the cop said, it's not my job. I thought, wow, what kind of a, you know, person are you? But I got out of the car with our kids yelling he could have a gun. <laughs> and I went over to him and I said something that I think made a difference in his life. Because I said to him, I want you to know I love you. But I'm sorry your parents don't. He made a U-turn and drove away. Now, my hope is, you know, a lot of people say, oh, how could you say, I'm sorry, but my hope is that if he comes to that understanding that he is who he is because of what his parents have done to him, that he could go home and change, you know, and I call it being a love warrior. See, I didn't go up to him and curse him and say, I hate you, you dumb kid. What the hell's wrong with you? You know, I said, I love you. And that was more of a wallop to him than what he's used to, see, the rejection. And um, my feeling is, because he turned and drove away, that he really did go and start a new path and realize what needed to happen in his life. Mm. So... Is that, is that kind of what you meant when you, um, I heard the phrase, sto or stories change people while statistics give them something to argue about? Is this kind of what you mean by actually giving people... Absolutely. 
because when I started speaking, I spoke like a doctor. You know, here's a study, here's this, here's that. And doctors in the audience would yell at me, you know, what are you, what are you upset about? That's a lousy journal. That was a poorly controlled study. Um, and I realized instead of arguing, see, when it was something they didn't want to accept, something new, something they hadn't learned or been taught, they'd fight with me. But if I told the story, there's no argument. Ah, that was a story. See? Yeah. But then if I'd meet them a week later, they'd say, hey, I got a story for you. <laughs> tell me about one of their patients. And then the change happened. Yeah. I mean, a typical example, there's a poem called Miss G. In it, um, a woman with cancer is examined by the doctor. And that night, the doctor is sitting at dinner with his wife. Uh, it's by W.H. Auden. And the, and the doctor says to his wife, cancer's a funny thing. Childless women get it, and men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. Now, I recited that oh. to some doctors, and one of them yells, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. Now, the truth is, it is true. A poet would never write that if it, you know, if it wasn't part of his observation of life. And you see, now, decades later, studies are done. Loneliness affects the genes which control immune function. So if you're lonely, you're more likely to get every disease, you know, in the books. And the other is the side, side of relationships. Women with the same cancers as men live longer. Married men can smoke as much as a single man, have less lung cancer. Have a heart attack home to a house with a dog. This is a study done in Australia. 5% of the people had died a year later. If there was no dog in the house, 26% of the people had died. Now, you know, I laugh because if I talk to a doctor, I'll say, yeah, that's because if you're eating the wrong food, the dog growls at you and bites your leg, see? So, you know, you have to eat the right food and go exercise or the dog will attack you. I mean, no, it's what, what happens to your chemistry when you pet a dog and when you have people around. Matter of fact, another article said, you want to live to be 100. You see how simple it was. Have a sense of purpose in your life. Eat you know, a healthy diet, be active, and what was the other thing? Oh, clan, you know, have relationships. Yeah, they said be a part of a clan. Being part of so society, have, feeling have together. Relationships, eat healthy, active, and it said you don't have to go to a gym, be, just keep moving, you know, be active and have purpose. Because Monday morning we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. So again, it, it, it's so obvious when you observe life you know, versus studies. And I got to tell you one more that made me laugh because it was a study of malignant melanoma. And the man doctor who wrote up the article said, women with the same stage and site melanoma live longer than men. So estrogen and progesterone must be protecting the women. And I thought, this guy is really an idiot. You know, he doesn't know life at all. Because I said, if married men live longer than single men, what helps them? Sleeping with estrogen and progesterone. You know, the women don't die because they'll say things like, I can't die, you know, till you're all married and out of the house. Or I can't die, who'll take all the pets? Um, and the men, literally, I've had several men sit in my office with their family, wife and children right beside them and say, there is no 
point in living, I can't work anymore. And I would always say, excuse me, I think there are three good reasons to your left. And it, and really, it was like you hit them in the head with the brick. Oh, oh, you know, yeah, that's an idea. But it's so sad to see the men, um, you know, living in their heads and not paying any attention to their hearts and their feelings. Yeah, I saw this as well. One, one of the things I saw, I think it was in one of your books or it was might have been on your website, but it was, you were saying how the second people gave up hope or gave up something to believe in, then often they would die days later, wouldn't they? Yeah. In, you know, and it's, I, I mean, I know people literally, well, two things. One is, if one of our children did this in, in school, in an art class, you write words, 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 but no space between them. Hmm. And when you look at them, you realize they've become swords, 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 swords. When he walked in the house that day from school, it was like, wow. I realized as a doctor, I can kill or cure people with my words or with the scalpel. But yeah, I know patients when their hope is taken away. One man in particular, the family, I said, you ought to sue the health plan. And they did because this man had cancer, but he developed cataracts. So he couldn't enjoy reading the papers. He couldn't play with his grandchildren. I mean, his vision was really affected. And he went to get cataract surgery. And the health plan said, no, we're not paying for that. You're going to be dead in a few months. We're not going to pay, you know, for cataract surgery just for a few months. He went home, got into bed and died in a week. And I told the family, you know, go ahead. And they did. And they won the case. I mean, it's tragic what happened. You know, winning doesn't make you feel better. But to say that to somebody. On the other hand, there was a chemotherapy uh, program with four drugs. They began with the letters E, P, O, and H. And it was called the EPO protocol. One of the doctors noticed, yeah, if you turn it around, it spells hope. He gave hope. But the others continue to give EPO. Now, they all were giving exactly the same treatment because this was a study. He had 75% of his patients respond. They had 25%. That's crazy. And I saw that in the office, too. I called it, matter of fact, on my website, BernieSiegelMD.com, there's an article entitled um, Deceiving People into Health. Because I realized people believed what I said. You know, it was hypnotic. So I lied to them for their benefit. I mean, a simple example I did, as you mentioned, children's surgery. I'd say to the parents, get a bottle of vitamins, but put a new label on it. You know, whatever's bothering your child. Hair growing pills, you know, anti-nausea. And whenever your son says, um, oh, my stomach doesn't feel good. Here, this will take care of it. You want your hair to grow? Take this pill every day. Um, and it was absolutely amazing and if any nurse is watching this, take an alcohol sponge, you know, when you're going to draw blood and tell the person, this will numb your skin. It's a new kind of sponge, so you won't feel the needle. A third of the people will be totally, you know, hypnotized by it and say, that's wonderful. You know, it's and a placebo, isn't others it? will say, I felt it. But, you know, it's a different, still a different level. Yeah, uh, I felt it, you know, not, oh, oh, that hurt. yeah. And by doing that, especially with kids, they, they wouldn't get all frantic, you know, if they saw the needle. 
and uh, would expect that, well, it's not going to hurt, that's okay, you know, go ahead. Even one more simple example, in the emergency room, I was just in the habit of trying to reassure the children that were going up to surgery, and I'd say, you'll go to sleep when you go in the operating room. I'm thinking of anesthesia, you know, and trying to take away their fear. And it began to be just a laughing matter because the kids would fall asleep when we wheeled them in. Before and the anesthesia. Yeah, you know, everybody in the operating room would start laughing because the kids would flip over, turn on their side, and they'd go out. And then they'd get mad at me for putting them on the operating table and waking them up. That was the funniest part. They'd start yelling at me, you said I'd sleep. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, this connection, because a lot of people, you would assume that the the mind and then the body, the physiology, and these are all separate things, but they're so connected, aren't they? Absolutely. They're a unit. Yeah, it's all one. Yeah, and that's why also I do a lot with dreams and drawings because your consciousness and your body can speak through those symbols, Mm. you see. And so... uh, What are some... some, I saw saw a video where you were explaining um, some of... Some of the things you can actually read from them. It was, um, yeah. Some. What, what are some of the some ways that you can interpret well, a patient's drawings? First of all, no doctor is ever told that uh, must be a hundred years ago by now that Jung interpreted a dream and diagnosed a brain tumor. Now, I think every medical student should be told that. So, when a patient comes in, say, "Have you had any dreams? Had any feelings?" Because I learned my patients knew I wasn't normal, so they weren't afraid to come in and say, "You know, the mammogram." report was okay, but I know it's not okay what's in my breast. And I would say, all right, we'll go ahead with a biopsy. And they were always right. I mean, one woman I knew had to see six doctors to get them to take out a lymph node because they all kept saying, it's nothing to worry about. Just a, It was a lymphoma. Now, she knew. And in one of our books called The Book of Miracles, which are just wonderful stories that, about things that happened to people when what I say, call it, they chose life. You know, when they chose to do life-enhancing things, all kinds of miracles happen. But you go to bed at night, you have a dream. A dark-skinned woman with an accent walks into your, you know, your bedroom and says, you have a lump in your right breast. When you wake up, you better have it checked. The woman woke up, felt it, her breast, there was a lump. She went to the hospital and they diagnosed her with breast cancer. They said, the doctor who will be treating your cancer will be coming in in a minute. Who walks into the room? The doctor from her dream. I mean, she didn't know in the dream, but it was a a doctor from India, you know, dark skin accent, and it's a woman from her dream. Now, those are not coincidences, you know. It's crazy. And the thing also is that therapists, you see, art therapists don't know anatomy. So... They won't see the things I might see in a drawing. You know, that, in other words, when I look at somebody's drawing, it may say to me, oh, those are your bile ducts. That's your brain. That's your, you know, and I know they're giving me a message about their body and even what the best treatment is because we're not only are we mind and body, but in your mind is intellect and consciousness. So those are two separate things. So I could say to you, you need surgery. Well, I don't want it, see? But then I say, draw yourself in the operating room, and it's a gorgeous picture. You know, with God's light shining in, everybody, 
you know, unmasked and loving you and flowers growing, you see, I say, look, you know it's good for you. Look at that drawing. Now, then there are people who say, I'm going to have surgery, and they draw a black box, empty of anything but themselves lying on a table. And I say, don't go ahead with this. Uh, you either change your doctor or your attitude. And um, God, if they do guided imagery, see, then they can go home, picture themselves going to the hospital, doing beautifully, going home again. And you do it four or five times a day. A week later, you've had 30 wonderful operations. And then you say, draw a picture, and it's beautiful. Then I'm not worried. Go ahead. You know, you'll do well. And yeah, and even the nurses would say to me, the, the problem with your patients. I said, what's the problem? They refuse pain medication. I said, excuse me, what do you mean they refuse? Well, they've had major surgery and they won't take, you know, the injection. I said, did it ever occur to you that they're not hurting? The nurses looked at me like I was nuts, but they learned in time that's exactly what was going on. You know, a, a pill might be all they needed. You know what I mean? They didn't need morphine and that kind of thing. And it impressed me too, but it had so much to do with the fact that, see, our chemistry changes based on our thoughts and feelings. And just so people know, make a simple example. If you take two actors. I was going to ask you about this. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. I was going to ask you about the actors. Yeah, see, then immune function goes up, stress hormone levels go down in the comedy. And this was done by a medical student as part of his, you know, thesis at the end of college. Um, and so he did that. Then he took a group um, and said, okay, here's a tragedy. There was a murder and all kinds of things and gave them the script. And their immune function went down, stress hormone levels went up. And I was quite impressed because I thought they're just acting and look what's happening to them. You know, that impressed me that just acting would do it. So I'm always saying to people, pick a role model and act and behave as if you're that person. Harvard students were asked, do your parents love you? Some said no, some said yes. And then they looked them up 35 years later. Those who said yes, 24% had suffered a major illness in the intervening years. Those who said no, 98% had suffered a major illness. So you go into assisted living, you know, I work with a lot of seniors too, and you say, did your parents love you? They look at you like you're nuts. Of course they did. You know, they're 80 and 90 years old. And I always say to them, you wouldn't be sitting here if they hadn't loved you, you know? But uh, because what you do to yourself if you don't feel love, it's like to make up for the fact you didn't get love. So whether it's food, alcohol, drugs, you know, you're always looking for something mm. uh, to feed yourself. And then you hurt your health. That's crazy. And um, another, I mean, yeah, exactly. You're trying to... Well, another thing which you mentioned, which I think it might be a link, is like, which this come this uh, this statement come through me a bit, but I guess it's all tied in. Like you, you said, if you hate your job, you are much more likely to get sick and die at a younger right. age than someone who's happy at work. Is that? Right. Is it, this is all? This is all linked, is it? Yeah, yeah. But you see, again, you can change your life or your attitude. Yeah. At the hospital, if I saw somebody acting in a loving way. I would go up to them and very gruffly say, what's your name? And they always looked at me like, what the hell did I do? And they would tell me their name. Then I would make them a gift. It was a special pin 
with a rainbow on it and their name. And it was a way of my saying thank you for your kindness, you know, to patients and others. And it got around the hospital, you know, because if you saw somebody with a pin, you knew there's a nice, you know, person. But one day I went up to this medical secretary and I said to her, what's your name? And she said, why do you want to know? I said, you're the only person who's ever asked me that. I said, the truth is, I'm not going to complain. I want to give you a gift because you're so good to the people and the nurses and everybody. And she said, sit down, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> she said, I've been here two years, but when I took the job, I hated it. I couldn't stand the nurses and doctors. She said, the patients weren't a problem, but I couldn't stand working with all the nurses and doctors. So I went to the office and I said, I quit, I'm going home. They said, you can't quit. Your contract says that you have to give a two weeks notice. She said, okay, you got two weeks. She said, I got up every day miserable for two weeks. The last day I got up happy and I went to work happy and I noticed something. Everybody around me was happy. So I didn't quit. I decided to come in happy. You know, and that's the, the point. As I say, you, you have a choice of your attitude. I always say to people, the only thing you control is what's going on in your head. You know, there's nothing else that you can do, uh, you know, and, and take charge of. But what you're thinking is yours. And I work on that myself every day, too. You know, you can say mantras, be grateful, uh, to really work at it every morning. Yeah. It's a conscious decision to actually decide to be happy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Versus just repeating all the terrible things, you know, that happened to you or they have to do today or, you know, whatever. And that's why I say it's Monday morning when the heart attack, strokes and suicides occur. You know, you've had the weekend off. Now I have to go to work again. <laughs> but here's a quote from somebody who was in his 80s and a man came back to the office one day um, and saw him there on a Sunday because the fellow had forgotten some things and he went back to get stuff he had left there. But he saw, here's the boss, you know, sitting there on Sunday. And he said, why are you working on Sunday? He said, it's only work if there's someplace else you'd rather be. Oh. <laughs> And I know others, when they develop cancer, who canceled the dress code at work. I mean, these are millionaires, you know, who go to work and say, look, you don't have to wear a tie, you don't have to wear a suit, you wear whatever you damn please, because if I'm going to be dead in a few months, what the hell's the point of getting dressed up? And he lived for over five years, you know, because he changed his life and his attitude uh, because of uh, the cancer. That's amazing. A couple of speed round questions to finish off. Like, Bernie, what does a fulfilled life mean to you? What does a what? A fulfilled life mean to you? I think we're here for, for, you might say, a couple of things. One is that life is a school. So we're here to learn. But I think what we're here to do is to contribute love to the world in our way, hmm. if you understand. Not what's, in other words, it's not my parents telling me, we want you to be a doctor. No, they didn't want me to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. My father thought I could help you in the business world, you know? And so again, when people give up their life, see this statement, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. If you do what everybody else wants, you lose your life. But he who's willing to lose his life, see, lose the untrue 
life saves his life. And be what you is and not what you ain't. Because if you ain't what you is, you is what you ain't. So be your authentic self and contribute love to the world in a meaningful way that you have chosen. So whether it's being a musician, a plumber, a mother, a doctor, it doesn't matter, but that you're here to contribute that love. And I think when I say that life is a school, I consider it a spiritual journey. Um, one more thing that was remarkable for me, back, you mentioned 78 when my book came out, I shaved my head, you know, before that time, when men were wearing their hair down to their shoulders, if you remember the style then, and it upset our children greatly. <laughs> I had no idea, but I had to do it. It had nothing to do with cancer patients. It was this inner urge I had. And then again, I came across readings by Jung, and he discusses a myth in which a hero's head is shaved in front of a mirror. And he said it is similar to what monks do to uncover their spirituality. It's called a tonsure, and they shave your head. When I read that, it, it was therapy. I thought, oh, that's what it's about. It's what I need to uncover. Because I have to say, as a doctor, I was burying all the pain, you know, the things I couldn't cure. Because when we started the conversation, you know, when she said, I need to know how to live, yeah. that reoriented me. But I was in such pain. See, and why would God make a world where children get cancer? I mean, just watching all this, you wonder about life. And I came again, you know, that when you say life is a school, is to understand why, that that a perfect world isn't creation. I always say that's a quote from God. A perfect world is not creation, it's a magic trick. So we're here to live and learn and love and create that, that world and to coach each other. I always say look for life coaches who, who can be critical of you, but in a coaching style, you know, to improve you, not like parents screaming, you're a mess, you're a failure, uh, you know, don't leave the house. It's, there's a better way of doing this. Let me show you. Yeah. Fantastic. And what is one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Love and laughter. Love and Laugh laughter. for no reason and you'll feel better. And cancer patients who did that lived longer. And I mean, every few hours they would laugh for no reason. And the other is give love to someone. Even, I always say, when you're walking down the street, pick out a stranger coming towards you and send them love. And watch the look you get when they pass by you. It's amazing. And a study showed that doctors, when people said that their doctor was compassionate, um, they got better faster than those who said, my doctor wasn't compassionate, doesn't answer my questions. Yeah. So again... Share those feelings, give them. And I always say, as a father of five children, you don't have to like what is going on, but love the person. See? That's why I say, you can be the love warrior. I love you. I don't like what you're doing. Those are two separate things. And then people can listen to you, knowing that you care, but that you're trying to improve them and make their behavior safer or more caring and so forth. I love that expression, love warrior. It's great. Yeah. 
<laughs> and are there any books or resources which have changed or had a big impact on you? Well, there's one novel I love by William Soroyan. It's called The Human Comedy. And see, even the title is, it's a tragic comedy, you know, life. But to say it in that way, The Human Comedy, and it took place during World War II, very much like what's going on now with all the war, wars going on. And so it deals with love, life and death. You see, the only thing that is immortal, why I say be a love warrior, is love. His comment was, because a brother dies in the war, and, and uh, this man meets one of the kids in the family who's so sad. He says, the best part of a good man stays forever. You'll see him in the houses, in the streets, and all the things that are here for love and out of love. For love is immortal and makes all things immortal, while hate dies every minute. See? And when the father of the family had died years before, the mother says basically the same thing to the kids. You know, your father will always be with us. As long as we're alive, he's alive. You know, and um, it talks about, and talks about doctors too. You know, one sentence is doctors don't know everything. You know, because they're treating, well, this sentence is a modern sentence. Doctors treat the result, not the cause. See, they don't know people. Another reason I love Soroyan, he was crazy about pennies, which I have always been. If I find a penny, I feel like God has dropped it there and I'm on the right path because it says liberty. See, the freedom to be yourself. It says in God we trust and Abraham Lincoln is on the penny and he was murdered. So it reminds you of your mortality and to enjoy your lifetime. And I was discussing this once at a lecture and again, see, no coincidence, who was in the office? I mean, who was in the audience? William Soroyan's daughter. And she came up to me and said, oh my God, thank you for talking about my father's book. And he was crazy about pennies too, because I didn't know that. But there is, in the story, there's a, a penny is found by one of the kids and the other person says, pick it up. But she said he would run out in traffic into the street everywhere if he saw a penny. And I do the same thing. <laughs> I was running the New York Marathon. And I said to God, I got to know I'm going to make it. This was the first one I ever ran. I said, I need a sign from you that I'm going to make it. We were doing it to raise money for leukemia, you know, cure. Because uh, the father drove me nuts. His daughter had leukemia. He said, you have to run the marathon. I said, you're crazy. I'm not going to run 26 miles. But he, he drove me nuts, so I ended up running it. But I said, I need a sign. Well, standing at the start, I looked down at the ground. And, you, you know, we're talking about 15,000, 20,000 people. What's between my feet? A quarter. 25 cents. So I pick it up and I thought, okay, if I find a penny, I know I'll make it. And running through Manhattan, there was a penny in the street. And if you stop, I would have been trampled. But I ran off to the sidewalk and went back and then came slowly up to the penny and picked it up. And I heard one man yell, how poor can he be? <laughs> you know, but he didn't know. But with that 26 cents in my hand, I knew 26 miles will not be a problem. You know, and that's why I say there are no coincidences. When you're, when you're living that life, as I said, that, that 
is loving everyone, that's when those kinds of things happen. I wish I had remembered that story and put it in that book of miracles. Because, you know, people whose car isn't working decided to drive at night because they were going home across the country after being discharged from the army. And they didn't want to, you know, cause a problem for other people. So instead of having a vacation, they slept all day and drove at night. But who do they meet in the middle of the night in Nevada? They met, when their car came to a hill, they pulled over to let the car go by, but he pulled up and stopped, came over and said, I'm the original designer of this car, and I know what's wrong with it. And he fixed it in five minutes. Now, you know, in the middle of the night, look who they meet. But you see, it's because they chose to be nice to other people, they met him. If they said, screw everybody, we're going to drive in the daytime. If we get in the way, that's their problem. They never would have met him. Yeah. I love that. And I love that. That penny, that marathon story is amazing. I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Bernie, this has been fantastic. Last but not least, how can people stay in touch, find out more? Should we send them to BernieSiegelMD.com? Yeah. Let me spell Siegel, which is often misspelled. S-I-E-G-E-L. Um, a lot of people spend it spell it A-L, which I think is a compliment. I don't mind having a feminine part, <laughs> having a gal in me, but it's Bernie Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, M-D.com. And the contact goes to me. I mean, I, I love people, so I don't have 10, you know, staff members answering everything. And, and you know, what you'll see there is a bunch of articles, um, comments from me, where I'm speaking, all kinds of things, uh, as well as connecting. Amazing, and it's an, it's an awesome resource. And I will, um, I'm going to put that in the show notes directly below the, this interview right. as well. Thank you so, so much for, uh, for giving out your afternoon. It's been, I, I've absolutely loved it. You've, you've, got, you've got some absolutely incredible stories. And so right. I'm sure we could have talked for hours longer. So we'll have to maybe well, do it again in the future. They all, you know, because they're people I know. I, I often say in the middle of my talk, I'm not making up any of these stories. They're all true. Because I don't want people to think I'm fantasizing. <laughs> Um, and you don't need fairy tales when you know all these people. You know, one, I'll leave you with one more comment that impressed me. The only way to make all this happen is to have a quiet mind. And in the myths, it's the ugly duckling sees he's a swan on a still pond. A tiger brought up by goats is taken to a still pond by another tiger and told, hey, dumbbell, you're not a goat. You know, because his mother died giving birth to him and he was brought up by the goat. So he thought he was a goat. But it's always the still pond. And again, I said, what you're in control of is what's in your head. But when you quiet your mind, that's when you see and know the truth. So I'd say to everybody, work at quieting your mind and creating that still pond. And I have to thank you for your smile. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'd love to talk again soon. So it's been amazing. I really appreciate it. Catch you soon.